<clears throat> Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Uh, our key passage this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4. If you'd like to turn over there, you're welcome to. Uh, but I'll be reading it here for you this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I want you to think about one very important question this morning. Does Christianity have a defining characteristic? Is there something, some quality that a Christian, no matter who they are, no matter where they are from, should possess in order to accurately represent a relationship with God? Now, when Jesus was asked this question, he did not hesitate to give one answer in two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The writer of 1 John helps us to understand the relationship between these two things just a little bit better for us this morning. First, from God's point of view. God is love. God loves us. This is of primary importance to who God is. But how do we know that God loves us? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, we don't have to guess whether God loves us or not. God has shown that he does. And that love is an expression of who he is. There is nothing that can keep God from loving you. Now to us, what is of primary importance? Well, we love God, really, truly, deeply love God. But how do we show this? Do we show this by being in this room today? Do we show this by how much money we put in a plate do we show this by how much time we spend reading our Bibles or in prayer? All of those things are good, and yes, they are vehicles of our love for God. But the way that we show we love God is that we love other people. Period. We love other people. Period. If you want to show that you love God, then love someone else. Period. Because God is love, and everyone who loves like God shows that they have been born of God, and they show that they know God. And anyone who does not love other people, they show that they do not know God. One more thing. When you love other people, you have the opportunity to show them God. Because God is 
love. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I remind us of this this morning because this is our defining characteristic as people of God. Because realizing the love of God through Jesus Christ is a life-changing experience. And we live in a world right now that is divided. And we live in a world that is not going to love one another as God would have us love one another. And we have not always been very good at loving one another. Maybe even at this moment you're thinking of someone you've gone to church with that you don't like or that does, or that doesn't like you. Churches have divided over any number of things. People have stopped talking to each other. Families have been torn apart by the people whose very characteristic is supposed to be loving God and loving other people. So if you wonder this morning what our role is in a world that is torn apart, I will tell you our role is to love other people. No matter where they are from, no matter what they look like, no matter what their background is, no matter the color of their skin, no matter how awful we think they may be, God demands of us that we love other people. And we here in our sort of isolated West Coast, where we don't have to face some of the things, I want to read to you these words. This comes from Christine Hoover of Charlottesville, Virginia, who listed all kinds of things that her church could do in response to what happened there. But this is what she said. Instead of all of those things, we will instead be Christians. We will continue to give the gospel issue of racial division our full attention. We will call white supremacy what it is, sin. We will continue building real relationships with brothers and sisters in our community and in our own church who represent alongside us the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom. We will continue partnering with our friends of various races as we seek to meet needs in our city. And her husband, she says, will preach the gospel from the pulpit as it's meant to be preached for all people. This, she says, is the gospel that has made me a Christian. The gospel that tells me all are made in the image of God, but only one stands supreme, Jesus Christ. He teaches me to love others, not celebrate myself or fight for my rights, not love selectively or with favoritism. He teaches me to try to understand others and to honor them, not to honor myself. He teaches me that his kingdom is the country and people to which I belong. And that kingdom is formed by every nation and people group. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And today in this world, people know, need to know the unending fountain of God's love. Amen? So, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Um, not just uh, for me personally, but for our country and all the different kinds of things that have been going on. And I have spent a lot of time over the past two weeks thinking about the future of my children. And um, for some reason, that is something that has just repeatedly come into my head. 
And uh, let me just be clear, it's not like I typically try to avoid thinking of my children. Um, and that's also kind of impossible since they're always like, you know, they are on, I wear them like a coat. Um, they are constantly on my mind in the front of my thoughts, but there is a particular reason why I have been thinking so much about their future in particular. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know what your experience has been like over the last couple of weeks, but it, it has felt like maybe if the world hasn't changed dramatically, then at the very least, the things that our culture has been, has kept hidden has all come to the surface. I suppose that there are two different ways to look at that. Um, and I don't really know, as a parent of two boys, I don't really know yet what to think about it, what to tell them about it. Um, and so mostly I just worry. Uh, and it started out uh, with me worrying about North Korea and whether or not there was going to be some sort of nuclear attack on us. Uh, for, <laughs> this is, I was walking around church uh, just when I was here uh, working and stuff, and I think the boys might have been upstairs or something. But all of a sudden it came into my head, like, what if this actually happens? And what if we have some sort of draft again? And what if my 11-year-old son in seven years has to go fight in some war whether he wants to or not? And I actually had to sit down for a second thinking about that. Uh, so that's that's sort of where it started. And then after the events in Charlottesville last weekend, a different sort of unease settled over my heart. And I don't know what your response was, if you paid attention to any of it as it was happening, if you just sort of heard about it in the aftermath, or if you have uh, sequestered yourself from the rest of Western civilization. Um, but I... I the, the thing for me was that I, I kind of I couldn't believe what I was hearing or seeing and things that I had taken for granted as being either gone or in such small pockets that they would no longer have any influence over culture or society as a whole. Um, and that I certainly didn't believe I would ever see on national television. Where you would see neo-Nazis walking down the street. Or you would see kind of the conflict that we saw. Um, you would see someone drive their car into a crowd. And you would hear people say she deserved it. It's been a weird two weeks, right? And I have wrestled furthermore with what I should talk to you about. Because typically speaking, I am not really, I'm not a political person, as it were. Um, and there have been times where I have just hinted at something political and people have gotten up and walked out of church. Because, and I, and I get it. Thank you, Jason. I was hoping you would do that. <laughs> I get it, though, because on one hand, when the world is so crazy, you don't want to come here and hear about it. I, I understand that. I understand that. Um, but I think if you will humor me for today, I think there are some things we need to talk about. Um. Because, as I read countless reports over this last week, one of the things that was most fascinating to me, and those of you who know me well, know that I am fascinated by how people think, by why they make decisions that they do, why they come to conclusions that they do, why they... Um, and so for me, one of the most confusing and interesting things about this week was how much... How much disagreement there was as to what actually happened and who was wrong. And you heard there were so many voices that were pitching into the conversation, trying to bring every possible viewpoint to this thing that 
it was almost difficult to have any sort of grounded conversation about what was going on. I have often heard Christians say, and this is the church that I served at prior to this, um, a lot of the membership, I would say, you know, roughly 70% was probably 65 and over. And I would often hear them say, I wish that we could go back to such and such a time. Um, whether it was the 50s they were identifying or, you know, whatever it was, there was something within them that wished for a time that they had lived through and experienced where the reality they were now facing, they didn't have to face. And I actually felt that to a degree for the first time. Now, for me, I didn't actually want to go back to any particular time. But I just wished we didn't have to face this kind of reality. I wanted to go back to where I didn't have to worry about North Korea bombing us. And I didn't have to worry about explaining to my children why Nazis still exist. I think this is normal for us when we are facing some sort of harsh new reality. We wish that things could go back to a time before that harsh reality to where we didn't have to think about it or deal with it. Um, And so that's a normal reaction for us to have. But here is the thing that is undeniable about what has gone on um, over this time period, is that these troubles that we are seeing, seeing come to the surface are not new. These are not new things. These are old troubles. And there are things that have been swept under the rug or put up in the very top corner of the closet where we don't have to talk about it or where we don't have to see it. But now, now we are raw and exposed. And truth has become a game. Who can tell the most compelling story? Who can yell the loudest? Who can insist that their way is the way the most convincingly. And right and wrong has become an endless debate with multiple sides claiming righteousness. But we know what everyone should know, which is everyone can't be right. Sometimes people have to be wrong. It reminds me of Zeke. Zeke will bring up some sort of fact or something to me. And keep in mind, Zeke knows a lot about basketball in particular. But he doesn't always know a lot about older players. So he brought up uh, the other day to me, he, he brought up Spud Webb. Now, some of you may know who Spud Webb is. Some of you don't. Spud Webb was a very short man who played professional basketball and who won the slam dunk competition one all-star weekend. And so my son says to me, Spud Webb is one of the best players ever. (laughs) Now, he did win the slam dunk competition, but besides that, he was basically a mediocre player. He had some good moments, but in general, he was a mediocre player. And I said said to him, Zeke, he did some really cool things, but he wasn't wasn't one of the all-time best players. He's like, dad, dad. He was an all-time great. I said, well, Zeke, he really wasn't. I mean, he did this cool thing, but, you know, he kind of... And this is what Zeke does now. When I give him sort of a fact about something that he doesn't really... That is counter to his fact, this is what he does. Uh. (laughs) As if him shrugging gives... Is like a valid answer to whatever it is that we're talking about. This is his new thing. And and so it reminds me of this. This is the culture that we're in now. No, this is like this. Uh, but couldn't it be like this? No, it can't be like that because of this and this. Uh. 
It's the environment that we live in. And as much as I want to physically protect my children, as much as I don't want them to have to go through some of these things that I am fearful of, there is something that is more important to me that I am going to have to address with them and I'm going to have to do it soon. Because somewhere in the middle of this mess that our country is in is Christianity. Hold off on the hallelujah. Hold off on that for a second. As some of you know, President Trump has many spiritual advisors. And when he was starting to talk about North Korea, one of his spiritual advisors cited a passage from Romans. And here's what he said. He says, God has given President Trump the authority to take out Kim Jong-un. And then he went on. The Bible gives the government the authority to do whatever, whether it is assassination, capital punishment, or evil punishment, to quell the actions of evildoers like Kim Jong-un. And this is not the only place that Christianity has been represented. People on both sides of just about any issue have claimed that God is in support of their argument. This is what God wants. No, this is what God wants. Well, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Let's fight. And so perhaps, church, in the middle of all the struggle and chaos where so many things seem to be spinning out of control, there is one question that we can ask. And if we answer this question correctly, we will make a difference. The question is this, what does it actually look like to be a Christian today? What does it look like to be a Christian today? Because here is what I realize. Nisha and I, as the parents of Zeke and Jed, along with you as their community of faith, we are going to have to teach them in the middle of chaos what it means to know God. And that is the same for every child that we had here in front of us today. And as figurative as that moment was, it could not be more true than it is right now. That the place we are telling our kids they need to go to stay on course, to run the race, to finish this pursuit of God, to be with him one day, there are more things coming in the way of them than we could possibly imagine. And if we, as their church, as their parents, as their grandparents, as their aunts and uncles, if we do not stand up in front of them, and say, this is what it means to know and love God, then we will lose them. We will lose them. Because there are too many voices saying too many things. And how are my sweet little 11 and 7-year-olds supposed to wade through that? If we don't, as a community of faith, stand in front of them, stand behind them, encircle them, so that they can find out what it means to pursue God. So if I'm going to tell my kids what it means to be a Christian in this messed up world, what do I need to say? Well, that's up for debate, right? It's a loaded question. How do you answer that particular question? You know, we're all about social media today. Uh, it's being used in ways that probably the inventors never thought possible. Um, we use it to keep in touch with friends, um, to show pictures of our kids, to communicate foreign policy, and generally give people a snapshot of our lives. So if we were to, say, construct an Instagram account, which is all pictures, if we were to construct an Instagram account about what it means to be a Christian, 
what kinds of images would we choose? And here is my guess about what some of these images would be. Probably something like this, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. We have someone praying, okay? Uh, maybe something like this. Uh, see, they're reading the Bible and they're smiling, <laughs> right? See how, see how fun that is? See how fun reading the Bible is? Okay, uh, so there's that. All right, maybe something like this. Okay, like feeding the hungry or the homeless. But seriously, think about it for a second. If you were to create your own, this is what it means to be a Christian page, then what kind of images would you put up there? Most of you in this room have probably never had to design a church website. But let me tell you something. Designing a church website is fun and it's not Because you have to pick images that display in some way what your community is about. And here's the thing. Nine times out of ten, you don't have that picture of your community doing that. It doesn't mean that they're not. You just don't have a picture of it. And if you do have a picture of it, it probably looks awful. This is the challenge, but we see it every day. Visit any church website and you'll see the images that they have chosen to represent their community. And this is something that you're going to see Christian people doing Christian things, right? Praying, studying their Bible. Uh, maybe there's some pictures of worship in there. Maybe there are all of these things. Now, all these things are not bad by any means. And hopefully we are doing those kinds of things, but it occurs to me that all of those things, those actions, those Christian things, they may not create the image that I actually want my sons to know and that I want the world around us to know. Or at the very least, they have to be put into a different context than the one that they're in for them to get the message that I want them to get. If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to the book of 1 John. We're going to do a brief study on First John over the next five weeks. So I'm just telling you now I'm going to skip some good stuff. The book of First John is going to take us right into the heart of what the writer believes is essential for someone to live in relationship with God in this world. And he cuts through any idealized images we might have and take us right to what is most important for us to know. Now, if someone were to come up to you and to say to you, well, show me what it means to be a Christian. What images would we pick? Well, we'd probably pick all those when we talk about going to church and about praying and about reading our Bible and doing all of those things. Well, what is most interesting is that the writer of First John doesn't start out in that place. In his mind, the most important thing that he can pass on to the people that are reading this letter, the most important thing he can pass on is confidence in Jesus Christ. Confidence in Jesus Christ. So the writer starts out this letter with an affirmation of the truth of his message. He is going to be speaking about Jesus and all the things he's going to tell them are things that he has either seen firsthand or he has heard about from someone who saw it firsthand. So when you read this letter, you can trust that he knows what he's talking about. Okay, so all the other things you've heard about Jesus, all the other stuff that people have said, all of these things, when you read this, you can trust it. I mean, I know your neighbor said this, and I know Aunt Jan said this, but this is something that you can listen to and hold on to. He is writing so they can be confident of all that they are going to hear. So look first in uh, the book of First John at chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. John, the writer here, starts out with this powerful image of light and dark to help us understand a few things. One, God's relationship with sin. Two, our relationship with sin. And then three, God's relationship with us. This is the first thing he needs them to know and be confident of. And so here is the building block that we must have. God is what? Light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Now question. The writer says God is light. Correct? So why does he have to say, in him there is no darkness at all? Have you ever thought about why that's there? It's not enough for him to say God is light. Why? Because, what does it mean that God is light? And don't we know that there are people who claim God for the good things and the bad things that they do? And that's not new to us. And so the writer says, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all, which means that God, being light, cannot associate with darkness, period. Now, this might seem like a dumb exercise, but hear me out. I don't know if you've spent a whole lot of time thinking about the nature of the relationship between light and dark, but here is the basic premise. Where there is light, there cannot be true dark. There cannot be true dark. Now, we are at a bit of a disadvantage, okay? Because we have, very few of us probably have experienced true dark. Being in a place where there is absolutely no light at all. So we, when we read this passage, tend to think of it as in half measures. Like being in the dark is being out somewhere where there aren't street lights. I got news for you. That's not dark. Anywhere where there is stars and the moon, there is light. So unless you have been and a submarine with the lights out at the bottom of the ocean, or you have spent some quality time deep in a cave under the earth, you may not appreciate what darkness and light actually are. Which is why the writer needs us to understand these things. God is light, in him there is no darkness, because where there is light, there cannot be true darkness. Light cancels out true darkness. Yes? It's just the way it is. Light cancels out true darkness. But here is the writer's point. Again, wherever there is true light, there cannot be true dark. And wherever there is true dark, there cannot be true light because those two things cannot abide together. They literally can't be in the same space. If you can see, then light is there. If you can see, then light is there. Now, God is light, and because he is light, what is the one thing he can't be around? Darkness, because he's going to cancel it out every time. He's going to cancel out the darkness every time. Because if he is light, wherever he goes, there will only be light. Let me give you an example here. Some of you know uh, Nisha's health history, but Nisha has a condition called celiac disease. And what celiac disease does is your body believes that gluten is bad for you. And so anytime you eat a product with gluten in it, your body attacks it. And so whenever Nisha gets gluten, we call it getting glutened in our house, 
Whenever she is glutened, her body immediately responds. She gets sick, she swells up, she feels terrible, and all these other things happen to her. And it, if she's glutened, it can take her up to two days to recover. Now, you're probably thinking in your mind right now, well, then she just shouldn't eat bread. That's fair. Uh, did you all know it's also in medicine, in spices, in shampoo, in soap? When you see gluten-free labels on stuff, that's actually pretty legit. And they have to meet a certain standard in order to get this. But here's how bad it is for Nisha, okay? Let's say you're preparing. You're never going to have us over to your house again, but it's doable, I promise. You're preparing food for Nisha, okay? And let's say that you cut some bread that you're going to serve to everyone else because we are still bread eaters. You cut some bread that is for everyone else, and then you touch something that Nisha is going to eat. She will get sick. Let's say that you cook some sort of, you've cooked some sort of bread item on a pan and you don't wash that pan well enough and then you cook her food in that pan, she will get sick. That's the world that she lives in. And she can't make a choice to have a little bit because having a little bit, dire consequences from having a little bit. God is light in him there is no darkness. Okay, not a little bit, not just a touch. Well, but I clean this thing or no, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Now, we don't really have a problem with this concept, actually, that God is light in him. There is no darkness. Uh, the problem is when we enter the picture that this starts to become more messy. You see, we may say that we walk with this God of light, but if there is any darkness in us, we are not walking in the light. Why? Because God is light, and in him there is. And if there is darkness in us, then what's the problem? Right? We, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Because light and dark cannot be together. Either the light will drive out the darkness or the darkness is the place you are walking. But it cannot be both. You cannot walk both in light and dark. You cannot have a toe in the darkness. Either you are in the light or you are in the dark. Now, that particular comment should make you a bit nervous, as it does me, because... I know myself pretty well, and I know that I have oftentimes more than a toe in the darkness. So this statement is a problem for me. But here is the important point that the writer wants to build on. If you are walking in the light, then he says you are in relationship with one another, and more importantly, you are in relationship with who? Jesus Christ. You are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus doesn't... Would you bring that last verse back up, Kelly? Thank you. The blood of Jesus does something very, very important for us. And boom. It purifies us. It removes all the darkness so that we, through the power of Jesus Christ, are not walking in the darkness we are walking in the light through the power of the blood of Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. We are walking in the light through the power of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus takes us from a place we cannot get out of to a place we cannot get to. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So there is light and there is dark. You're either in one or the other, but you can't be in both. Only Jesus makes it possible for you to walk in the light. Look down now at, at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, can, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him 
out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, I love the logic here. So stay with me on this. The next important question that the writer has, the first thing he wants to give us some confidence here, but the second thing he has is how honest are you being with yourself? How honest are you being with yourself about this? Because here's a basic truth that somehow gets lost in the image we present about Christianity. The praying, the singing, the raising our hands. Every follower of Jesus Christ is a sinner. Every follower of Jesus Christ is a sinner. Every true follower of Jesus Christ is a follower because they know they're a sinner. This is a truth that we have to embrace. Every single person, every Christian makes mistakes repeatedly. Everyone has failed. All have done things that they are not supposed to. Today, all walk too close to the darkness. And the point, again, is this. We cannot walk in the light on our own, and we need to never forget that. That we are dependent upon Jesus Christ to walk in the light. We are not those whose walk is the right way to walk. We are not those who have the answer to every question. We are not, I am not someone you should model yourself after. You've probably never heard a preacher say that. But the reason is this. We are those who are purified by the blood of Jesus. And it is by his grace that we become who we are. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Jesus. Why is it so important that we are honest with ourselves? In particular, why do we need to keep this distinction clear? The writer knows this. It's, it's too easy to make the story about how well we walk in the light. The story is not about what we are capable of, but rather what God has done for us. And we live in this space where we see all too well our failures. We recognize the myriad of ways that we fall short. We know that we not only flirt with the dark, but we are stuck in the dark if it were not for Jesus. And so we live in this space where it is so important for us to know ourselves because when we acknowledge these things, when we live in the truth and conviction of them, God shows us forgiveness for our sins and he purifies us so that we may be in the light. If you claim that you don't have a problem with sin, you are a liar. But if you confess your sins, God is faithful and will purify you from whatever it is that is going on. God does that. God does that work in us. And furthermore, by acknowledging our sin, we show the truth about God. We show the truth about God and what he really wants to offer the world. Look, verse 10, if we claimed we have not sinned, we make who out to be a liar? God. And his word is not in us. Because what does the word of God tell us? We are all in need of a savior. That God sent his son Jesus here for our redemption. And when we walk around like we don't need redemption, we are making God into a liar. So that those who hear that message from us, as we walk around like we don't need redemption, they don't want to be like that. They don't want to be like those people that they know too well who act like they're better than everyone else, but they're really not. When we acknowledge our sin, however, we speak the truth about God because we speak the truth of our need for him. 
We speak the truth about how we have failed and God moves us into the light. We speak the truth about how we are redeemed and purified by God. We speak the truth about how we don't have to carry that baggage with us anymore. Praise God that we don't have to carry that baggage with us anymore. When we speak of our failures, we speak the greatest truth about God that he loves us and redeems us. When we ignore this truth, we make God look bad. So instead of pretending we have everything together, we acknowledge our many failures because it is in this great acknowledgement that we see our need for a savior and God and his love are glorified. Now turn over to chapter two. Starting in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Wow. Right? I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. There's a couple things that we see here, okay? First of all, is he suggesting that we can't sin? That we can keep ourselves from sinning? I'm sorry, I mean... I mean, he's already said in the previous passage that we're going to sin, right? And that we are dependent upon Jesus to walk in the light. So what is it that he's saying here? What he's saying is this, I think, being a sinner does not give you an excuse to walk in the dark. But when you find yourself lost in the dark, Jesus is there for you and is the one who pulls you over. Jesus is the one who makes things right. But understand this, you are still striving for something. I can embrace all the ways that I fail, And still give everything I have to God. I can embrace every mistake that I'm going to make and still fight against them with everything that I have. I can find myself at the bottom doing the worst possible thing. And I can know that even in that place, if I call out to Jesus, he will bring me up from that place. The fact that Jesus purifies us, that he brings us into the light, is not a reason to stop trying. It's a reason to try even more. Because we know that the heart, we know that at the heart of this, that Jesus saves us and picks us up. And as we experience this love, then we want to be a part of that all the more. You cannot earn what God is offering you. But as Dallas Willard wrote, he said, God is not opposed to effort, but to earning. He's not opposed to you trying. He's not opposed to you giving it everything you have. He's opposed to you thinking that it's something you did that brought you into the light. But there's one more thing here. God's salvation is not just your story or my story. He is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Paul, when he was uh, speaking to the leaders in the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he says these words from Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Listen to what he says. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Testify. How did he see himself in this moment? What did he understand his purpose to be? He understood that as the one who knows God, who knows the grace of God, that he has one task until the day he dies. And that is what? To make the grace of God known to the world. To make what known to the world? 
the grace of God known to the world. Because Paul understood something. That is what they need to know about God. That is what they need to hear about faith. That is what they need to experience about Jesus. And we, those who know God and salvation through Jesus Christ, are the ones who call out to those in the dark and lead them to Jesus, where Jesus can do amazing things in their lives. Amen? We think maybe that our job as Christians is to embody the image of better living through Jesus Christ. So we show images of praying, of worshiping, of reading, of doing all these things. But I searched online and I just typed in the image Christian and here's what I found. What's the one thing in common in all of these? It is a person humble before the cross. What is being a Christian about in the world today? Is it about condemning world leaders? Is it about saying what God wants or does do or won't do? Or or is it simply saying, I am someone who fails, but God's grace saves me. It takes me from the darkness into the light. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you think, you need to know this same thing. That God loves you. And that God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, takes you from the darkness into the light. My boys don't need to be perfect. They don't have to do everything right. They do need to be genuine. And they need to be real. Because the more real and genuine we are, the more hope other people will have. Because when we are at our very, very best, we are pointing people to Jesus. So let's not just do Christian things. Let's do Jesus things. Let's love one another. Let's love the unloved. Let's feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. Let's humble ourselves before God and in all ways acknowledge our dependence upon him. Let us represent light in the dark place. Let's pray. Holy Father, we live in a difficult and confusing time. But God, you are a God of love and goodness, of grace and mercy, of peace and understanding. And we cannot find those things apart from you. God, we are going to be challenged to speak to the world about what it means to be a Christian. And God, may our message be that we are saved by Jesus Christ. That we are sinners who are given redemption. May that be what people hear from us. And as people hear this message of redemption, may they have hope. May they see the way that God loves them. And may the world become a different place because we know who we are and we know who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, we invite you to come forward as we sing a song of victory together.